MGM Mirage's $10 billion project in the Las Vegas Strip that is set to open in various phases in December. Um, as far as I know, there's uh, they've been somewhat guarded about some of these in- internal details. There were definitely other people on tours yesterday, so we may start to see some other um, impressions and viewpoints uh, start to leak out. But um, it was a lot of fun. We started... Um, across the street at the city center um, temporary headquarters on Frank Sinatra, and we walked over to the site uh, and <clears throat> walked through part of the Aria, headed outside to um, see the uh, casino circle, the main the main entrance area. Um, walked back through Aria, Crystals, Madara, and then finished at Mandarin Oriental. Um, didn't get to see any guest rooms. Uh, the tour was basically all public spaces, but um, it was it was amazing. Now we talked a lot about about Ariana, I think, on the last show, uh, and I had some impressions based on some photos and video that I'd seen of the interior. And I think one of the things that I said was I was concerned about sort of the lack of cohesive design, at least as evidenced through the photos. And one thing I can certainly say is that. Uh, that concern, I think, is by far less uh, in my forefront of my mind. It's just it, actually, actually seeing it um, and seeing how they put the things together, uh, it's, it doesn't, doesn't feel jarring moving from one spot to the next. It does seem like it's somewhat cohesive. But there definitely were some interesting spots. I mean, the, the poker room thing we talked about last time, which has these uh, large playing card-type-looking things, are, is just as ugly as I thought when I saw the photos. Um, the casino itself is, uh, I would say, probably the least interesting part of the project. Um, and, uh, you know, they have c- continually said that uh, City Center is something different. And, you know, that sounds kind of like uh, marketing speak. But, um, uh, honestly, it is, in some ways, that's actually true. Um, and I, I think if you if you look at it that way, you maybe get a little bit of a different impression. I mean, I, I was standing in front of that casino circle, and I honestly could have could have imagined being in another place like New York City or another big um, urban area. It was there were some really impressive spots. Um, I mean, definitely some standouts. The the uh, Mandarin Oriental Sky Lobby is is unbelievably cool. Incredibly good view. Uh, they've got a bar and a restaurant up there on two opposite sides, and both look like they're going to be pretty awesome. Uh, I think, Chuck, you even posted some renderings of the bar today, and that's basically exactly what it looks like, except all the furniture wasn't totally installed. But it uh, it looks like it's going to be a really great spot. Um, one of the, There's definitely some odd things, though, uh, specifically um, Aria, yeah, as you know, is sort of split onto two levels. There's an upper promenade level and then there's the casino level and it's very i mean that's very segmented they're very much when you're upstairs you're seem like you're kind of like in a, on a different planet uh and maybe it will feel different when there's a lot of people inside and the the uh walkways are full with people going to see the elvis show but it, it felt uh sort of almost like you're in a whole different segment of the place that's sort of far and away um one other thing that I thought was interesting that I'm, and that may or may not be an issue for them is that there's stairs everywhere. I mean, you're different parts of the complex. You're walking up, you're walking down. And, you know, there have been other places in Las Vegas where stairs have been seen as an impediment to 
um, you know, tourists and discovery and that sort of thing. Um, there's some pretty significant walks, and I'm sure everything is, is handicapped accessible and there's elevators everywhere, but they seem to be really wanting to push people through a lot of these stairs to get to different segments of the property. Um, let's see, what else? What are else my other in, initial impressions? Uh, Vidara has almost no public space. It's very, very small. You walk into the lobby, and there's uh, a little bar area, and then there's uh, a restaurant, which really, um, the Silk Road restaurant in Vidara has got some pretty trippy design. It's very uh, sort of 1960s, like mod-esque kind of vibe. It's very, it's very unique. Um, and then there's this one, there's, as you've probably heard, there's public art all, the, all throughout the complex. Some of it is pretty amazing. Um, some of it, and some of it's been photographed already, like the Maya Lin thing that they have in the ARIA registration area. But there was one piece I hadn't heard about before, which is in Vidara, in the uh, elevator lobby. And it's, you look at it, it just sort of looks like colored paper almost. But apparently it was put together by basically putting paper on its end, on its thin end, and stacking it together, like post-it notes slid into this meshwork thing. It's, it's pretty cool when you actually see it close and personal and realize how it was constructed. Um, let's see. I don't know. Uh, when, when, after seeing the project, I definitely think that MGM Mirage is way off base with their marketing. Um, not that not that they haven't been criticized for some of the marketing related to ARIA already, but it, they've got a lot of interesting stuff going for them. And while it may be a complicated job to condense that into a marketing message, so far it seems like they're totally failing at that job. The commercial that they're running on TV is, uh, you know, basically scenes of people like having a good time, like on sailboats and in uh, in big buildings. It just doesn't speak to me at all in any way, uh, and it's a shame because there's some really cool stuff in this in this complex, and they don't, they seem to be miss, missing out. Um, one oh, one other one other random note. I, I I've heard uh, actually Steve Wynn talk about. Um, public spaces and use of marble on the floors, and uh, I think I've heard him say something on the line, along the lines of, you know, it's difficult for women in high heels to walk long distances on marble, and that's why they sort of integrate marble and carpet in a lot of wind properties. Um, Aria and most of City Center has a lot of hard marble and lacquer floors that uh, aren't broken up by any carpeting, so I'm curious to see if that will have negative acoustic effects and if people will complain about it, because it's very, the floors are, a lot of them are really beautiful, but they look like they could be murder to walk on for a long distance. Um, we briefly popped into crystals, uh, and uh, there's definitely still putting things together in there because it was very stark. It definitely felt very wide open, um, sort of airplane hangar-esque. Uh, so hopefully that'll be deadened a bit by, um, by the people as, they are, as they're in there. Uh, honestly, the crystals didn't really do all that much for me, um, but we didn't see the entire thing, and I, I guess there's, there's some some cool installations in the middle part that we didn't get to see. Uh, right up front there at, at Aria's portico port chair, when you come in, there's a, a miniature wet design uh, fountain display, sort of Bellagio-esque, but very, very small. Uh, and supposedly, they didn't find they were still installing it, but supposedly it includes some new technology that they developed that that uh, city center has exclusive rights to for some period of time. So, if it uh, if it's something incredible, then they're going to have it as an exclusive for a bit. But we'll see. 
I don't know. That's sort of a quick overview. The tour, um, which where we didn't, you know, we, we didn't even see huge parts of the building, and it still took almost three hours. Um, it's a huge, huge place. It's just gigantic. But um, oh yeah, there were some other interesting things like the slot. I guess typically the uh, casino areas they like to cool them by pushing cold air out from the ceiling. And one of the things they wanted to do as part of their green initiative was to reduce energy consumption for cooling the building. And so this, all the pedestals the slots sit on actually have the air output vents, uh, so the air will come from the bottom instead of the top, which is apparently is far more efficient. Uh, so little things like that that they've done uh, here and there. It sounds like there will be some cool new technology like that and some ideas that they're sort of first at city center, and you may see them elsewhere pretty pretty quickly thereafter, but uh, definitely some firsts in that uh, in that degree. So I don't know. I mean, if you, if, I don't know if you guys have any questions or anything I could answer but uh, or something I didn't cover, but uh, it was a long tour. We saw a lot of cool stuff. Hunter, <laughs> I'm excited to get back. Hunter, I'm curious if you happen to look in any of the, uh, the F&B venues or uh, Hayes Nightclub and what your thoughts on any of those were. Specifically, we didn't see Hayes. We didn't see Hayes. But um, we did go through some of the other restaurants, some of them. We, we, I mean, we were like, we felt like we were racing through there, and it still took a long time. Um, they're I'm trying to, I don't have the sheet in front of me, but the, um, the Julian Serrano restaurant that's in the lobby um, walked through that, which is a pretty, pretty neat design. I guess he brought in his own designer from Spain. Um, some of the the lemongrass restaurant that's in the uh, near the high limit area also a pretty pretty neat design. The cafe upstairs or the downstairs the cafe um, is got I think it's like 600 seats so it's pretty large and they've got this cool um, wall made out of rock that's backlit with water coming down it. One definitely one of the features that's prevalent through the whole place is the use of. Uh, water features, but not necessarily fountains. Uh, there's a lot of like decorative rock walls that have water running down them, with lights projected onto them to create different shapes and colors and that sort of thing. That's you see that in a lot of different places throughout uh, throughout Aria. Pretty common. What other? We saw, the, we saw the gold the gold lounge upstairs, which is the light group uh, circ kind of combo thing that they're that they're. <clears throat> That they're doing in conjunction with the Elvis show, which is like it looks like a, a bird cage, a huge bird cage made of gold. It's, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty crazy. It's very, very, very stylized and decorative. But again, upstairs, like it feels very out of the way. I, I don't know it. I'm trying to think of something to compare it to, but it feels like sort of how the Country Club at Wynn is like very far away, tucked in the back. These upstairs restaurants aren't that aren't physically as far, but they definitely feel like they're an entirely different planet. Hunter, I'm, I'm one other thing. Uh, I hate to uh, monopolize with the questions, but uh, the uh, the high limit area, the baccarat with all the Asian restaurants, you know that that back, the salon prive, uh, is it Asian inspired design? Did you manage to get in there to kind of poke around or look at all, or did you really just flash through it? We were the whole. The, there was a lot of flashing through in general. There was. I mean, we really, really kept on moving. But um, I would say I don't know if I would say uh, not um, overtly heavily Asian inspired, but it, it's in some ways it's similar to Wynn's Tower Suites, where you can tell that the quality of all the finishes has gone up a couple of notches. Um, the, 
the floors are nicer, the uh, the um, the wall tapestries are nicer. I mean, it basically, it's like they turned it to 11 in that section, um, and where they, and that's also where they have the you know sky the sky suites check in, um, and they showed us their uh, compressed natural natural gas uh, limo uh, that will be cruising people around, <laughs> which looks just like a normal limo. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, the uh, a lot of stuff in the casino still isn't finished. There were workers everywhere. They were testing the fire the fire system so that it was loud, crazy, you know, alarms going off. Um, like, like I said before, the casino itself is really probably I would say the least interesting part. And I just mean the the gaming floor stuff around. There's some interesting stuff around it. Some of the restaurants uh, look very cool in terms of design. Um, there's uh, for those people that were dismayed by the lack of uh, belly-up bars at uh, Wynn Las Vegas, there's quite a few. There's one directly off the lobby. There's there's one, the, the main guest room elevators um, have, uh, you sort of walk up a couple steps, and there's a bar there, and you continue past them to go to the guest room, sort of similar kind of to how Encore's elevators are tucked behind the lobby cafe. One interesting thing, the um, the the... Yeah. The elevator lobbies, instead of the back wall being closed, it's actually open and looks out over the Harmon entrance, so you get light coming through that side, through the elevator lobby, into the casino. Granted, not a lot, um, but it's, it, you can see through all the way through. Uh, the casino is pretty dark, um, not, just, not just because it's dark, but dark everything, dark tones, dark wood, dark carpet. Um, as, you know, as we said before, casino, the casino looks a lot like... Um, sort of a hybrid of some of the newer casinos in town, like M and Red Rock, and even a tint of the uh, Mirage uh, Casino redesign in terms of some of the some of the touches here and there. But um, it's really all the stuff around it that seems the most interesting. And it's too bad we didn't get to see the rooms because I was really curious about, uh, especially the rooms at Aria and at at Mandarin. Um, but uh, she said, "Come back in December to see the rooms." <laughs> there just wasn't enough yeah. time. Hunter, I got one more last one for you. <laughs> uh, quality of workmanship, and they've got 27 days left. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think they'll definitely be ready. Um, they were they're in cleanup. And, I mean, there are ladders everywhere still, but uh, and and there's definitely workmen running around everywhere. But uh, it looks like it'll be ready. I mean, I, you know, you know how these guys go into like overtime mode. When they get to the end of a project and basically work, you know, 24-hour shifts, um, you know, work multiple shifts every day. I, I think that uh, they'll definitely be ready. Some parts look done, like Vidara looks pretty much completely done, which is good because it's about to open. Um, one one thing that's oh, I don't know that is a little bit off-putting to me is um, just the sheer uh, necessity of moving all the cars around. I mean. The, the Harmon side looks like an airport in terms of how they have directing traffic through different parts of the complex to get to where you want to go. I mean, even down to the signs, they look like airport signs. I can imagine seeing like arrivals and departures on these things because they look just like that. Um, and there's just a lot of roadway. I mean, they're moving. They have to move all these people around. But it, it just, you know, it's not a beautiful gardenscape. It's um, at least on the Harmon side is you know a lot of uh, a lot of road. They do have a lot of plants throughout the entire property and it's landscaped well they're all um they said either native or low water requirement plants they're trying to keep that whole message pervasive and there's a couple of 
there's another really neat spot, which is sort of between the crystals and Aria, um, where they have um, another another piece of art sitting there, and it's sort of what they call a pocket park, which is basically a small little uh, public space. It's got a reflecting pool and the glass wall that is the other side of the uh, Aria main registration, which is a cool cool little spot. They have outdoor dining for a couple of the uh, restaurants that are in the crystals. And uh, you know, I was wondering if you could walk from the crystals to Aria without going outside, and you definitely can. Um, you can walk from Vidara to Bellagio without going outside. Uh, you can walk from Vidara to Aria, but you have to go outside, or you can take the tram uh, if you wanted to, I guess. Um, I'm not sure if you can walk from Mandarin to uh, Aria inside. We went outside to get into the Mandarin, and then we went out through the parking garage, so I'm not sure if you can go direct without having to go in and out. Um, there's retail on both sides. The crystals, obviously, is the main retail component, but there is also retail in the base of the Mandarin complex. There's a cafe and a couple of a uh, couple of other retailers, and um, so yeah, I don't know. I was impressed. I mean, I, I, uh, part of it was just exciting to see it, right? Of course, but um, definitely the finishes and some of the things in the restaurants. And there's some. There's some really cool wood. I mean, some of it looked like it was like salvage from train tracks or something like that. I mean, just some really cool touches, and and uh, some of the stonework is really incredible. Um, I mean, you can tell they definitely poured a ton of money into this stuff, and it it definitely shows in some of these places. So I rambled on long enough. I hope. Yeah. Thank you so much for all, all that. It's uh, really exciting. It was fun. I, I'm actually I'm excited to go back. Um, I, I'm actually more excited now to try the Mandarin Oriental than I was before. Um, before, I was very much like looking at the price and having sticker shock. Uh, but now, now it's like the kind of thing where I can I am more inclined to try to figure out how to make it work because uh, it was a really impressive part of the property. Just super, super high-end, nice, and uh, that Sky Lobby is is really pretty amazing. The restaurant, I, I, the twist. Go ahead. I have a question about uh, Mandarin, which maybe uh, all of you guys might know the answer to, but uh, it's like, what is from the ground floor to 22 are, is the hotel, right? That's and then everything correct. above 22, those are residences. Correct. That's correct. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. The, the twist restaurant, which is the Pierre Gagnon, I think that's how you pronounce his name. Uh, yeah, which is part of Mandarin is um, pretty small. It's got you know incredible views. Look over the city center side of the complex. They've got these cool. Um, the plates are made. The the dinner plates are they're probably the, the plates that are on the table when you sit down. But they look like sort of cracked eggshells that have been bound together. They look they're pretty neat looking. Um, just little stuff like that. I mean, it, it's it's definitely uh, huge. The place is just gigantic. I mean, the, it is immense. It's, it's, but you definitely don't ever lose sight of the fact that it's just huge and gigantic. And you know, we didn't obviously didn't see anything having to do with the Harmon, but the Harmon looks and it just looks so stubby next to everything else. It just really looks short and kind of sad. And and then of course next to that is the Cosmopolitan, which is I think ugly at least its color i think is bad it's just it's so drab um it's uh, sitting right next to it and you know you can think if if cosmo wasn't there then aria people
Uh, I think I heard it when I got cut off. I basically was just trying to say that MGM Mirage has some good stuff to work with. They just need to find a way to explain it to people better than I think they've done so far. At least, you know, at least people that haven't been following the project. I mean, I, I know there's still a lot of people that don't know what City Center is, um, and they're being introduced to it now, you know, as part of this whole campaign. Um, but uh, I don't think the stuff that I've seen so far is um, is really doing them service compared to all the stuff they have to work with. So. so, Hunter, in terms of your the entire experience of going on the tour, what conceptions did you have before? I know you, you had, had mentioned numerous times on the Twitter that uh, you had written a 16-page handwritten screed about how, <laughs> you know, about things. Now, what? How much of that do you think after now finally going in there and sort of looking at it and stuff? What percentage of your preconceptions before going in there have been eradicated? Well, I mean, a couple, couple things. I mean, one, one was the. I, I up until this point, I've really been thinking of it as uh, thinking, being probably been the most interested in like the casino floor. For some reason, drawn to the casino as the center point of the project. And I think if I think people that think that way are going to be a little bit let, let down and disappointed because it is just you know in in that sense it's just another casino and yes it's a nice casino but it, they're they're really banking on all the other stuff that's a part of it that will that will be what puts it over the top and seeing it in that context um, makes makes me me think about it in a different way. Um, and I think that's kind of what they're trying to get across in their marketing, but I still think that they're doing, they're not pulling that off because nobody that I know that's seen those commercials has thought that they got it. So some, somewhere that thread is being missed, but there is a lot more, you know, the, the some, the, some of the parts do seem greater than the, uh, the whole to some degree. I mean, it, it, uh, I was um, a little bit worried about some of the stuff. I just didn't know if it was going to be as awesome as they said it was going to be, and I still don't know if that's true. I mean, the amount of hyperbole that they've injected uh, is pretty high. But um, but there is a lot of really cool stuff there, and if the restaurants are great, if the show is awesome, which, you know, I'm, it'll probably be hard to ruin a show with that, that's, with that subject matter with Cirque du Soleil, I think it's going to be pretty awesome. Now, at the same time, it's like people say, well, is this going to change Las Vegas? Is this the new Las Vegas? I don't know. I can't imagine an, another city center being built. I can't imagine the Harris version of city center being built. I just, I mean, I'm sure it will change some people's <laughs> conceptions and maybe introduce some new visitors, but I can't, in, in as much as, oh, the Mirage opens, let's copy it with a bunch of other themed resorts, I can't imagine other companies coming in and copying city center as, as you know, going forward. It doesn't, wouldn't make any sense. I hope that answers your question. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you know, the openings are, are fast coming. Um, there's still a lot of it that I haven't seen that I am excited to come back and see. Um, but most of all, I can't wait for everybody else to see it so we can uh, talk about it uh, in, you know, in more depth. Hunter, Hunter I would ask uh, what, what you think about the uh, property's ability to lure um, the the company's top players and people who who now play at, say, Venetian, Palazzo, um, Wynn, and Encore, Caesar's Palace. 
is this the kind of place, I mean, you know, and everybody always goes and checks out the new place, but you think that this place can, uh, you know, move right into the top couple property group that right now would be Win Encore together, Bellagio? Um, can it uh, stand uh, side by side with those or ahead of them? I, I think I think it definitely has a good shot. I mean, a lot of that comes down to uh, the relationships of the players and their hosts, the casino marketing people, um, you know, and so obviously that's an X factor. But the facility can support it. I mean, you know, I can I can only imagine that the experience that somebody like that would get at um, at the Mandarin has to be on par or superior than with some of the other places in town. Um, and then, of course, you've got Aria's super high-end suites as well, which are didn't see them, but, um, you know, if you combine it with everything else in the property, I think they've got a solid shot. I, You know, they, they have talked about Bellagio and how they seem to magically think that they can uh, not, uh, not uh, siphon off all the top players. I'm having a hard time understanding how that's going to be true. Um, I, I think it'll be interesting to see if Bellagio does take a hit, because, I mean, I, I would think that they're going to move those people over. And when you look at if when you look at them side by side, especially in terms of the room component, I mean, let's be honest, Bellagio was built in a previous era in terms of size of rooms and amenities, and uh, and it's hard to compete with a new hotel that's got floor-to-ceiling windows and bigger rooms and all this incredibly incredible new technology. Um, so, you know, it'll be interesting to see how much they do cannibalize that side of the business. Um, I, you know, I think they definitely have the potential to slide in, but I think it's that's it'll be real. The onus will really be on the service and marketing side of the business to to make it happen. They built a beautiful facility, so now they got to get the people to to pull it off. And I think you hit the nail on the head about service, um, service quality, how prepared they are, and uh, you know, and and their their competitors too. I mean, um, obviously, uh, Win is not going to be. Uh, you know, keeping his arms tied behind his back. So uh, it will be interesting. Yeah, it certainly will be. Uh, you know, the next few quarters to see the financial performance especially. I mean, this, you know, never lose, can't lose sight of the fact that this thing is pretty pretty incredible looking, but, man, it cost a mint. So <laughs> they really have a, a lot of work to do, and uh, they're on the right track. But uh, it's, it's going to be a, a big hill to climb. Um, as far as the city center goes, I'll probably do a follow-up post on my blog in the next couple of days uh, where I will try to answer any questions that anybody might have as best I can. Um, but for now, I think we'll move on. Um, Fontainebleau, the uh, North Strip project um, that uh, <clears throat> has been stalled due to bankruptcy proceedings. Um, this week, a... Uh, a offer was announced, and well, actually, maybe Jeff, I'll let you explain it because there's two figures, two fifty and fifty-one million dollar figures, and I'm not exactly sure how they tie in together. So maybe you can explain what the offer was and, and uh, how it might shake out. You know, I really, you know, to be honest, Hunter, I have not um, explored that in detail. So um, I would refer you guys to uh, um, our excellent uh, reporter Steve Green's uh, um, pieces on the Sun website. I think. You know, the RJ has a few uh, daily pieces, too. Um, what I do know, um, and I, I, what I can do is, in more general terms, um, say that um, Penn National is making a, um, you know, a, as a stocking horse bidder, 
um, is setting itself up to acquire the property, the property itself for a very small price, with in a in a deal with the property's um, lenders. So they're allowing um, Penn National to make this a this what's called a stocking horse bid. Other people will be able to try and top it. Penn National will get some small amount um, if they are topped by someone else. But this is a deal that's, that would require Penn National and the lenders to finish building the property, and that's where the big investment is. It's not Penn National, you know, paying uh, 50 or 100 or 250, 250 million. It's um, getting, you know, it's sort of like it's very similar actually to what happened with Aladdin. If they had had to spend another billion and a half to two billion to finish the property, um, and uh, you know the line would have been a lot shorter in terms of who's going to bid on it, um, I don't think it's out of the question for somebody else to come and bid. But um, you know, right now with the uh, capacity um, crunch that's uh, already is already taking place and is about to get worse. Um, you know that's going to limit that's going to limit interest, and I think that you're go what you're going to see is, um, you know, is anybody prepared to be bold? Penn National is, did not make this is not some big bold move. Really, it's the bankers faced with nobody else who wanted to get out um, in front. Um, you know, now now the, the bar has been set. It will be interesting to see, you know, whether it does bring um, another bidder out of the woodwork. Um, some people have speculated on Boyd, others Jack Binion. Um, you know, I, I frankly don't know, um, but there's a lot of people who have been telling me that this is no, um, it's not a slam dunk. I mean, I, I, you know, I've said all along I'd be surprised if it doesn't get finished, but. You know, they say that that 1.5 to 2 billion to finish it, in today's terms, um, is probably a pretty big multiple over the cash flow the thing's going to throw off for a few years, and you know, properties just aren't going. You know, properties are are right now valued at a pretty high multiple because they're losing money, they're not making a lot of cash flow, um, but you know, if you at the cash flow they produced a couple of years ago, multiples are horrible. And so, you know, I think people don't know what to expect with Fontainebleau when it opens. Um, I think one of the most interesting things is, are they going to go the budget route? I mean, it was already being designed and supposedly built um, in the in the manner that um, the Mandalay folks had built before, which was always to accomplish something relatively nice, but at a much cheaper price than maybe Wynn would have paid for um, building a property. Um, they would, you know, they cut a lot of corners, used, you know, inferior materials, but got a lot of bang for their buck. So for Penn National to come in, and, and from all reports, they've been trying to figure out ways to spend even less to keep that on the 1.5 billion or less side of how much it takes to finish. You know, if they're going to really cut a lot of corners, you know, it, it and and maybe they can do that and compete at the high middle end. Compete because it's a new property, interesting look. Maybe they can compete with the Mirages, the Treasure Islands, the MGMs, the Luxors, maybe even the Mandalay Bays and Paris. 
But, you know, that remains to be seen. So, yeah. you know, there's still a lot I don't know, but um, I think it's very interesting. And, you know, this gets the ball rolling. You know, now we're going to end up, you know, with a period of time before other bidders can come in. And that's where you're really going to see the action, if there is any. Um, if there's no action, it means that the entire industry, you know, pretty much is saying, you know, take your crack, Penn National. But, uh, you know, it looks to me like Penn National, you know, if 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 they can just walk away with a very minor, um, you know, th- three-figure million um, expenditure. They have a whole bunch of cash, a lot more than that, that they could have put into it. So, you know, it's a pretty minor gamble on their part. Now, go ahead, Dave. Well, I'm wondering if this happens, is it still going to be called the Fountain Blue? Because I, I thought one of the ideas behind the Fountain Blue originally was it was going to be creating this national brand or international brand with the one in Miami and the one in Vegas and then other ones. So if Fountain Blue no longer owns it, the Miami folks, would they even want their name associated with it, especially if it's Penn National Gaming, which I don't think is what Software had in mind with the Fountain Blue brand. Yeah. No. I mean, what could they call it with a Pennsylvania theme? <laughs> the Keystone. Keystone. Or the uh, the, pencil, the pencil tucky. Uh, <laughs> I guess the, the Harrisburg. The steel plant. Man, I don't know. Now, I have a, is, would this deal be contingent on them financing the rest of the project, or do they already have that financing lined up, or is that some very big question mark? Does anybody know? I mean, in, in that situation, and you know, they haven't disclosed that, but presumably it would have been worked out with the bankers. Typically, the bankers sign on to uh, – the bankers sign on with Penn National, and they have an understanding. A lot of times it means the bankers are going to throw even more money on with, um, with the ability to either get paid back if things go well with Penn National increasing – you know, um, its ownership stake, or if times don't go well, bankers end up owning the thing. Um, yeah. And but but I, I'm not that is not clear, and I'm not certain that's how it's that's how it would work out. A lot of it, of course, is dependent on it. It's dependent on whether they win. But if they win, presumably the bankers throw more good money after bad and hope that it turns good. Well, it's it's pretty crazy. Certainly, this whole fiasco that seems to never end, I think, makes the Boyd people look smarter every day by putting the stop on their project. It's funny how in Las Vegas you see a lot of people, you know, begrudging Boyd the potential for bidding bidding on the Fontainebleau, saying, "Oh, you know, you you let Echelon, you know, you let, you're letting it lie dormant," but. That was an that was a very savvy move. They hadn't spent that much. It doesn't cost it much, cost Boyd much to let it sit there. And if they can get the thing at a at a at a good price, a much better price than it would have taken to build Echelon and get the results they need, it's like they would still you know, they'd still have that site for future development. So you know, I'm not saying that Boyd will bid on it, and I think that they probably are more confident in the the locals' casino market and its ability to rebound when the economy turns. And you know, I, I have a feeling that's their bigger priority is trying to peel away from a, some of uh, Station's local assets here in town, and that's a pretty tenacious fight. Right. Well, that's a good point. Well, uh, 
you know, it's at least something's happening with the Fountain Blue thing because it's having it sit there is just, uh, you know, it's sad to see it sitting there half finished for however percentage. And uh, it would at least be interesting to see something come of it. You know, I, I'm going to disagree a little there, Hunter, about Fontainebleau okay. sitting there. I think, you know, Echelon, because it's a skeleton, I don't know, it's sort of, it, it, I mean, and now it's blocked, you know, at ground level by a fence, but anybody in nearby hotels can see it. Um, you know, I think that actually looks worth Fontainebleau, for all appearances, I mean, two different things. One, you know, it doesn't look, it, it's mostly finished from the outside to the naked eye. Um, and and two, even when it was in the process of construction and they were still building it, it's amazing. It's almost like it was built with disappearing ink or something because people in town never even noticed the thing. I mean, even as it it reached its incredible height, and you look at it, and it is huge. It is a you know a very very tall and big building, um, but. People really are sort of oblivious to that thing, and I don't know wh whether it's because most people don't spend as much time on the North Strip. I mean, it's obviously there. You can see it from all around, but it just seems to attract so much less attention, and I rarely ha hear people talking about the, the look of Fontainebleau or that no progress has been made or that, you know, they have stopped work now for half a year or whatever. Um, I don't know what it is about that side of the strip, but I just don't, it just doesn't seem to enter people's consciousness as much as um, city center and even cosmopolitan. Jeff, I think that the reason why people don't uh, notice the Fontainebleau is by design. The blue colors specifically are matched, I'm just assuming this based on my own observations, are matched to the color of the sky. So the, the, the resort itself is not supposed to be there. From what I remember hearing is the front of the tower is supposed to be a gigantic projection screen, LED thing, kind of like the, uh, the Grand Lisboa in Macau. Uh, <laughs> so, so the intention is, is that the tower will be invisible. You'll just see whatever is kind of a holograph over the top of it. That is sort of a, you know, it's like a giant drive-in movie screen, you know. So... Uh, I think it's possibly by design the reason why people don't necessarily notice it. Maybe what the, maybe what Penn could do is paint the thing yellow and call it the lemon. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. The only thing I, I would like it a lot more if they if they would finish it enough so they could light it light it at night. Um, I think it would uh, be more far more attractive. Also, the construction lights are still up on the very top of the crown. Um, you know, just the big white construction lights are just not very attractive. But um, yeah, I mean, it's clearly not as not as bad looking as a as a, a cement frame next, like the one across the street. Well, you know, we'll see how this thing shakes out, and certainly talk about other bidders if they do emerge. But it looks like we have a little bit of time here before that would happen. The next thing I wanted to talk about before we go for the day was the Global Gaming Expo. Um, which is going on this week here in Las Vegas. Um, Dave, did you get to go cruise the show floor? I did. Did you see anything interesting or uh, noteworthy? Eh, you know, I mean, some of the spot stuff was kind of neat. Um, I, You know, same thing as last year. I liked some of the WMS stuff. I thought it was, it seemed pretty different. But in general, you know, it's just a lot of slot machines and things like that. So... And, you know, also because I think 
budgets are so tight, they know that there's not that much of a need for replacements right now. So I think it's it was definitely more muted this year than last year, and last year was more muted than the year before. So, eh, you know, not so much. I, I definitely – I did a panel yesterday, uh, and I didn't actually cruise the show floor, but um, I definitely got the impression from from people's questions and from talking to the few people that I did that the overarching theme is that uh, everything sucks. Uh, when is it going to get better <laughs> was sort of the vibe that I got uh, from everybody. I mean, it just seems like uh, maybe shell-shocked is the wrong word because they're not uh, stunned into a state of submission, but it definitely people seem like they're hurting and are looking forward to uh, another day when uh, things aren't quite so terrible. Yeah, I think that's kind of one of my, that was one of the things that I found a little bit dispiriting about the show is that everybody, and I think I alluded to this in my blog today, where people aren't, you know, last year they were more about, well, how can we fight the recession? And this year it's how can we survive? And yeah. they're just getting this kind of what psychologists would call external locus of control where it's like they don't control their own destinies anymore. And it's like, well, you know, guys. You know, if you want to, you know, if you want this to end, you have to do something. You can't just wait for it to end. You've got to try to offer people better value, or you know, listen to what they want, and you'll get more customers. Recession and recession. So I think that's kind of a that was a little bit disturbing. Yeah. One of the things, one of the things you mentioned about the uh, slot floor and that slow replacement cycle. You know, that was even starting before this recession. It's like machines. You know, particularly in the video poker segment that we have so much of here in Las Vegas. But even you know, with the you know the du- the double diamonds and the and the blazing sevens machines that were you know obviously wheel of fortune. Now there's new machines, and we're you know obviously seeing. You know, we've seen ticket out, ticket in, ticket out. We've seen um, um, a lot of bonusing and interactive type games with. So it's not like there haven't been new games introduced. We went through a, you know, a half decade of, you know, every TV show, an old movie, an old actor and actress and singer getting a slot machine, you know, themed after them. But but a whole bunch of machines that were popular 10 years ago remain popular and are still on casino floors. I mean, that was unthinkable 10 years ago. People, you know, there there was sort of, you know, the machines that got moved out of the mirage, you know, maybe they went to some, you know, ri- you know uh, riverboat or cruise the nowhere casino in the southeast or something. But... Now casinos have no shame about leaving you know that kind of product on their floor because it still makes money. Um, you know people are you know not demanding you know new and different as much as they seemed to ten years ago, and casinos are saving money. So obviously during a recession, I mean if they weren't doing it two years ago, I think Dave is dead on. They are obviously deferring that kind of stuff. I mean in addition to deferring maintenance and you know all kinds of other expenses, they definitely are deferring those. Well, the thing, it wasn't all that long ago that we we're all talking about mobile gaming devices and, and the handheld, you know, roulette tables and all that stuff, and that has gone completely dead silent in the last year and a half. And server-based gaming. I mean, now City Center is going to have it, 
But yeah. I certainly don't hear anybody saying, uh, we're going to keep our eye on City Center, and if that thing is profitable, we're ripping all ours out and bringing in, you know, these uniform uniform boxes that can have remote downloadable games. I mean, yeah, that's what I was going to say. gaming, though, is, I mean, okay, so yes, it's, you know, on the horizon it may require some some game replacement. And Aria, as far as I could tell, almost, if not every machine, almost every machine is set up like that. But let's say that that does get implemented. Won't that make that problem even worse down the line? Because all of a sudden you don't have to replace games anymore to get the late <laughs> machines to get the latest games. Well, you buy the software. They would, yeah, yeah like you're not buying more, the box. It would be more leasing sort of stuff like they do with a lot of the participation games. Um, you know, several of the WMS and IGT games and Valley games are leased to the to uh, casinos, and there's revenue sharing too. So I think it would be more of that model, which which has worked pretty well. You know, you remember where uh, Harrow's was cracking down on some of the IGT uh, participation games a couple of months ago. So and, and and that's actually gone the other way now. Um, it's sort of interesting, IGT. Um, replaced their chairman with former Harris chairman and CEO Phil Satry. Um, and so, you know, I have a feeling you're going to see a rapprochement between um, between Harris and IGT. And with, you know, the IGT devices and their participation games in particular, um, the Wheel of Fortune games and, and others are just so darn profitable that you really, you know, you're cutting off your nose to spite your face if you uh, try and pull those off your floor. Yeah, that's a good point. It's just it's interesting to see that evolution and um, and and yeah, yeah. As I mentioned, uh, you know, we knew that server-based games were going to be an area, but I couldn't I couldn't find a non-server-based machine uh, as I was scanning the floor. So it's definitely pretty prevalent. One one thing that I was interested in that Dave said, Dave was talking about sort of the gloomy mood among casino operators in terms of, you know, what can we do? Um, because really, I mean, certainly they can take some action in terms of trying to steal business from others, try to boost the market, figure new and innovative marketing ways to get people to, you know, spend a little bit more of whatever discretionary income they have left. But the economy is such a bigger, so much a bigger factor, and I think it's because like, Steve Wynn is is the only operator who's really gone out on the limb and been railing about the big picture economy, talking about Washington, D.C., talking about things that, you know, casino operators, especially those thinking about expanding to other jurisdictions here and abroad, they're, they're sort of, you know, um, conditioned to not say anything in politics. You know, they want to. They don't want to burn bridges. They don't want to antagonize people. So casino operators pretty much try and stay out of politics in terms of in terms of verbally. Now they they're very much in politics when it comes to their checkbook, probably on both sides. But um, it's funny that Wynn is really the only one who's getting out there. Um, you know, on, you know, and criticizing the the current administration. Um, I think that. Like I said, most most of them don't do it. It's not the norm for the industry. But I think that everybody I talk to says, look, the, the, the way the casino industry solves this problem is that the economy gets better. And then, frankly, they can't do much to make that happen. Yeah, but then they haven't really solved the problem. They're, you know, they're they can't okay. solve the problem. That's, yeah, that's you know, the in point. Case, I mean, in which case, why do why do executives get such good compensation? 
works. You know, <laughs> if it's easy enough to, you know, it, I think they can't have it both ways. You know, if they're trying to argue that they've got this skill set and can identify all these factors and do these models and blah, 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 and that's why they're such good managers, great, but, you know, now's the time when you prove it. You know, anybody could make money when inflation is going up and, and all that stuff is happening. That's just my, I guess that's my own slightly contrarian view there you know no i think i think you're you're right i i don't i don't think that's a contrarian view i think that it's it's probably contrary to the way you know to the modern executive compensation system across almost all american industries unfortunately but uh you know they get those people get paid more and more relative to uh frontline workers and you're right when times are good, you know they benefited along with everyone else in uh, on the rising tide. But uh, you know you're certainly not going to see those executives, um, you know, making minimum wage when times are bad. Yeah, you know, I, just, I you know I think that now is when they should have the ideas, and I think definitely a lot of them do. You know, there are a lot of success stories. I mean, you know, this country came through the Great Depression when things were much much worse, and a lot of businesses survived and a lot of businesses prospered. You know, look at what look at what Hollywood did. Um, in those years, look at what radio did in those years, and that's you know that was certainly discretionary spending when people had a lot less of it and there was a lot less security in general in life. And Hollywood did great, so uh, you know I think I think it's a challenge, but I think it's a challenge that's not totally un- unsolvable. I think that's why you're seeing people in Dubuque gambling on a riverboat, people in um, Jackson, Mississippi heading to the Gulf Coast or to Tunica, uh, people in Atlanta heading down to New Orleans or Mississippi. You know, what's happening is people are are not paying for the big expenditure of a, a, a long trip with, you know, triple figure still hotel room rates and expensive restaurants and nightclubs people can drive over for the day and uh, get their gambling fix close to home and and save money because they're worried about losing their job or you know what you know they just have a lot less discretionary income to spend so um I, you're right the, the the casino executive could prove himself by doing well during this time, but it's sure awfully difficult um, with uh, given the economic circumstances. You know, looking at looking at uh, how Jim Murren handled the recession uh, to me is, is is inspirational. They figured out how to cut costs. They figured out how to you know to dance the tightest of the tightest of the sharpest razor wire tightrope to not only keep from having to uh, completely dismantle their company, but also to keep their big project going and to keep from going bankrupt. Well, it was a miracle. It was a miracle of timing, Chuck. Also, that two billion dollars they raised from a from a public offering. You know, they could never do that now. They couldn't have done it a month before, a month after they did it either. Yeah. I mean, you're right. I, I am inspired by Jim Murr, and I think he's done a great job. But I tell you what, if City Center doesn't work, if the economy doesn't turn around, they have, you know, billions and billions of dollars in debt that they and that their City Center partner has to pay as well. Um, you know, they are not out of the woods. They are out of the woods for the time being, and he gets a lot of credit for that. 
but Jim Murren is not, you know, he's not out of the woods. I think it is an inspirational story. I think that, you know, you look at, you look at Wynn Resorts and, you know, I mean, we all remember sitting there listening to Wynn conference calls a couple of years ago when he was always fending off criticism about how he wasn't, you know, getting his, his straw into the Macau spigot fast enough. And, you know, he would, you know, he'd say, oh, that Sheldon Adelson, he's a swashbuckler. Well, swashbuckling got Sheldon in trouble a lot more than it got when resorts in trouble. So there are some good stories out there. Boyd Gaming, it's you know, it's it's willingness to put ego aside and and delay and probably probably cancel that echelon project. So there are there are good decisions being made in the business. Don't get me wrong, but what I'm saying is the you know the 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 sinking tide or the the uh, ebb ebbing tide is what is the is the dominant thing now. Executives have either done well or done poorly uh, because of that, but eventually they need that economy to bounce back. Yeah. Fair enough. I think we'll let that be the last word for the day. Uh, I am going to evacuate my encore upper-level uh, outpost as they appear to be having some kind of a convention in the room next to where I picked my chair. Um, <laughs> thanks, guys, for being here. Uh, I really appreciate it. I'm going to go around the table, and you can tell people where they can find you. Uh, Dr. Dave Schwartz, where can people track you down? You can find me at gaming.unlv.edu or dieiscast.com. Mr. Jeff Simpson, how about you? Inbusinesslasvegas.com. And Chuck S. Monster, Ph.D., what about you? <laughs> you can find me at wincore.com. <laughs> That's <Nice>. great. <laughs> All right, gentlemen, have a wonderful...